Hi, Jeff. How are you doing? Very good. How are you doing, Gary? I'm all right. I'm all right. Nice to see you, by the way. And uh, you as well. And first of all, as always, I just want to tell you what a huge impact you continue to have on my spiritual well-being. I find your books fascinating and amazing. And uh, I'm currently reading uh, The Secret uh, Teachers of the Western World. Oh, okay. simultaneously a secret history and consciousness <laughs> a lot of secrets yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that's which is perfect because that that will lead into uh yeah. today's conversation so right. our upcoming issue is uh it's uh, magic mysticism and the paranormal and right. i wanted to speak with you because i guess a couple of years ago now i had read dark star rising mm-hmm. and i found that to be a very eye-opening book uh because me, like most people, you know, I think of magic as something that used to happen in the Middle Ages or something that you know, is practiced on the fringes of society. Uh, I'm, I'm a believer in magic. It's not that I don't, don't believe that it exists, but what I didn't realize is that the way that you're thinking about magic and, and what you're seeing shows that magic is a very prominent part of the modern world, uh, much more so than probably most people, certainly I was thinking. Uh, and so I guess, first of all, Gary, what I'd love to have you do is define magic for us, because I know that's been such a big part of your mm. Well, I mean, defining, ma- I mean, I don't know, magic, um, Elster Crowley famously said it was the art of causing change to occur in, in conformity with will. And then Dion Fortune sort of changed that a bit to changes in consciousness with conformity of will. Mm. Uh, but I mean, just, you know, Overall, I would say magic is this, the the belief that through certain you know rituals, certain practices, um, the mind alone basically can somehow uh, either alter reality or make contact with agencies that can that can do that. I guess that's you know traditional magic is carried out by the spirits or. Um, demons or whatever, you know, uh, you can conjure those. Then I guess there's a natural magic if someone has some kind of inner, like Rasputin, you know, okay, he could heal and uh, things of that sort. So, mm. but I think in the context that you you, you started um, talking about it and um, talking about my book, Dark Star Rising, Magic and Power in the Age of Trump. What, I mean, the central idea behind that book, even though Trump is kind of the, the figure, he's kind of a linchpin, is that we, I thought we entered a time in which from a variety of different avenues, the notion of a stable, objective, um, you know, reality that is there and it's something cut off from us. We, we can't, I can't, no matter how hard I think and try, I can't, you know, make something happen in the world, which is basically, I would say, you know, the fundamental idea of that magic, mm-hmm. that from a variety of different ways, um, that idea, as you said, is usually on the fringes, on the margins, you know, or it's from the before time, you know, our, our deluded ancestors believed in something like that. But it seemed to me that uh, it, it was dead center. It had come in from the, you know, it had come in from the cold, as it were, into kind of the center of action. And um, there are a couple of reasons for that. I mean, um, you said around Trump, he himself is uh, a devotee of you know, positive thinking. Um, and he was schooled in, in, in the ideas of uh, Norman Vincent Peale, who wrote this very, very 
influential book in the 50s, The Power of Positive Thinking, which is more or less a kind of Christianized version of a magical notion or mental science and new thought, that thoughts are things and yeah. you can use the mind alone to, you know. So Trump was brought up on that. And then there's reports that at the time, um, his, his sort of uh, followers, the alt-right, who nobody ever hears about anymore. I mean, they were in the news for quite some time, but they're, you never hear about them anymore. They were supposedly somehow using magic on the internet to help him get elected. Mm -hmm. And this is a, a form of chaos magic. And I, by saying this, I don't in any way want to stigmatize or associate um, any chaos magicians out there with, you know, either the old right of Trump, but it did seem to be they were in some way using this. And this had to do with, you know, using the internet and posting these memes, strangely enough, about Peppy the Frog, which is a whole strange story, which I, I don't know if I want to go into, that's a weirdness. But so that they're supposed to be doing this, Trump is practicing positive thinking, but, and then the whole cultural context in which this is taking place is one in which from both the academic world and the world of popular culture, this notion of reality being unreal or up for grabs or malleable, uh, uh, that, that's, that's the common kind of, um, uh, kind of idea. It's just sort of accepted, you know, postmodernism, you said magic in the modern world, but it's more, I would say magic in the postmodern world. Mm -hmm. Um, and even now in the post everything world where we are, we, we, we seem to want to jettison everything, you know, from the past. Um, but, um, no, this notion that reality with the capital R truth with the capital T we've come to understand it doesn't really exist um, in the way that we thought. And even in science and all this, you know, with quantum physics, where, you know, we, we, uncertainty principle and indeterminacy and all this different ways. And then popular culture, the most popular thing for the last several decades is what? Reality, reality TV. And so the representation of reality has seemed to taken over from the actual reality itself. So that was a long-winded way of saying that Magic seems to have come into the center because of all these other things that have taken place that have basically created a kind of cultural space or mental space or whatever you want to call it, belief space in which it, it seems to be, yes, this can be true. And also, you know, we live in a time of conspiracy theories where there's less and less um, faith is put into, you know, the authorities and, and what they say. Right, right. Very interesting. Um, <clears throat> so... I guess what I would like to, to ask you, because I found this, what I found fascinating is, <clears throat> of course, as you said, the central figure of your book happens to be Trump, but it, it, uh, it, the book expands all around that. And you said <clears throat> that uh, in politics on, on all sides, you know, magic is, is being utilized. And, and I assume by that you mean consciously utilized, not just... Um, people are using magic without knowing it's magic. They're mm -hmm. actually consciously using it. Uh, and, and I wanted you to differentiate because some of like the power of positive thinking, I wouldn't have thought of it as magic before I read your book. I would have thought right. of it as more like um, psychological influence or, you know, so I, I wouldn't have quite given it mm -hmm. magic. But when I read your book, I thought, yeah, you know, that's, it's, really magic. I mean, it's not just, it's not just uh, changing my attitude and therefore better things happen because I have a better attitude. It's, mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. actually having some direct influence on reality. Uh, 
Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I was going to say, and, and one of the things I, I I show in the book is that um, there's a lot of similarity between positive thinking and the aims and approach of chaos magic. Again, not to stigmatize chaos magic, but they're both after. I mean, positive thinking it's a, a realizable wish, and in chaos magic it's an achievable reality. So they're 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 goal oriented. They both want to make something happen. And on the chaos magic side, that's a reversion back to the old idea of magic. Um, uh, chaos magic, as far as I understand, starts up in the sort of mid 70s here in London, around the same time that punk starts going. And like punk, it's a DIY kind of magic. It's a do-it-yourself magic, like punk was do-it-yourself music. But they were tired of like, the, if you know the magic in the late 19th, early 20th century, it's the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. And it's much more of a mystical kind of approach. It's it's about having the knowledge and conversation of your holy guardian angel, which is like your higher self or your true self, or you know, whatever variance on that. And they were like, no, we're tired of all that. You know, we want stuff to happen. You know, I, I want money <laughs> to come in the mail, or um, I don't like my neighbor, or whatever. You know what I mean? That they wanted to change things. And it's the same thing with positive thinking. I mean, you appeal. Uh, uh, he was schooled in all these older new thought, like Ernest Holmes and um, Ralph Waldo Trine. And, you know, new thought goes back to Ralph Waldo Emerson, the you know the great American essayist. He coined the phrase. And then William James, the great American philosopher and psychologist and early, you know, explorer into mystical states and so on. He was very much behind it, too, in the sense that he understood that, you know, it, it somehow it he couldn't understand exactly why, but it somehow it did have this effect on the whole, you know, as you said, it's more health oriented than in the early days. It later got into the prosperity kind of gospel. But um, no, it's all about sort of focusing. You, you make a mental image of something that you want to happen. And it, need, it needs to be something that could happen, not like you know, something that is impossible, but something that could happen through normal means. It's just that right now you, something's in the way and, you know, there's problems. And then you think, think, and think, and you focus on that. And then it just, you think it down into your unconscious. And then it's somehow the idea is that you act as if it's already taken place. And so this, this again, this is like you're affecting the reality out there. So are you familiar with Neville Goddard? Um, I'm, I know who he is. Uh, the expert on that is uh, a Mitch Harvitz, um, who's written quite a bit about uh, Goddard. And he's kind of sort of been a one-man kind of revival for for his work putting out lots of stuff um but i mentioned him in, in dark star okay um, because um again he he he's someone that is kind of sort of on the i don't want to say he's kind of on the edge of sort of the new thought prosperity but he also gets into a bit more deeper kind of waters yeah um, that that to me cross over into someone like well i mentioned the magician and artist Austin Spare in the early 20th century. It's kind of contemporary Crowley. But yeah. he's he's kind of seen as a kind of early proponent of this chaos magic stuff, which has into what he's right. I have a feeling I probably got into Neville Goddard after I read your book, because I don't know where I would have heard it. I, it's fairly recently that I heard of him, and I then I started reading his writing, and there was one story that he tells uh, <clears throat> about someone who was a mentor of his, and he he said he wanted to go on this trip somewhere and he didn't have hmm. money and he couldn't possibly afford it. And, and then the whole story is this, this mentor says, okay, just know that it's already happened and then forget about it, you know? Right. And, 
and then the, oh, there's a whole turn of events, and he's almost going to go, and then he can't go, then he's almost going to right. go. Yeah, yeah. Yep. The last minute he can go, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very compelling. And then he goes back to his mentor, and he said, "It worked. I knew it was going to happen, and it happened." Mm. And the teacher said, "It worked because I had faith, not you." Mm. And it and I, and I really struck me the ending of the story because because that guy never had faith. He never thought it was going to work all the way to the end, mm -hmm. but. I started to realize that I tend to think of these things as, okay, you you know, like even the secret, you know, that's so popular. Whatever. Right, right, yeah. You put these things in your mind and because you're holding them in mind, like you're saying, you're thinking about it and thinking about it, unconsciously that is affecting what you do and therefore you will end up creating the thing that you are implanting. Mm -hmm. But when I was reading Neville Goddard and when I read your book, I started to, I started to want to think of it just in terms of magic, like not in terms of a, sort of an unconscious intention that becomes manifest because it is working on my psychology, yeah. but as some kind of intention that gets implanted in reality and then reality conforms to that intention. Uh, and the more that I thought about it that way, the more I've seen, the more I believe it actually works that way. Uh, and and uh, it's a fascinating shift for me. Mm. I mean, uh, I, when you asked earlier about my definition of magic, I mean, what I, I should have said, and I say in the book, is I, it's, it's induced synchronicity. Mm. You know, you know, uh, Jung's notion of synchronicity, meaningful coincidence. You know, something very important is going on in your life, in your head, and then you suddenly see something out in the world that is exactly lined up with it. And, and so... To you, so obviously and unmistakably meaningful that it seems like well, someone or something is aware of what, uh, you know, it's that kind of striking kind of thing. And magic, I would say, is somehow it's a way of making those things happen. You know, um, I mean, Jung didn't like the idea that we could somehow make them happen uh, he he because it sounded too much like magic to him. And, he, you know, throughout his career, he wanted to maintain um, that he was he had doctor, professor, scientist, and not that, uh, although everyone knew that he was, and we all know now. But um, so he, he's, you know, in the early days of kind of trying to associate synchronicity with quantum physics and all this kind of stuff. And it, it's actually kind of a muddle. I, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a great fan of Jung, and, uh, you know, his work has informed and, you know, inspired me in the end. But at the same time, when he tries to explain synchronicity in these kind of scientific terms it gets a bit muddled but um that's what it seems to me and say someone like say alistair crowley he was kind of hit 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 and miss because sometimes it worked a lot of times it didn't but i think he somehow knew some way to throw himself into the unconscious as it were and stuff would pop you know things would kind of happen and maybe what he wanted to happen would be one of those things. You know what I mean? Uh, so it's kind of like that. And But that's fundamentally it, I would say. You in, induce synchronicities in some way. Yeah. Fascinating. So, so you yeah. just mentioned Alistair Crowley, and I, yeah. have, I have not actually read your book yet on him, although it's on my show. One of the millions. <laughs> He's an interesting character because uh, I'm trying to uh, publish uh, and I don't know if I'll be able to, but I want to publish mm -hmm. the letters between Alistair Crowley and Fernando Pessoa. 
because uh, oh wow wow okay a favorite poet of mine and i i am a friends with a, a pessoa scholar who's been mm. translating and and looking into some of pessoa's esoteric works mm. so and i think i think that story is in some book of yours that i read oh uh, well it's in my book about crowley and also um I write about Pessoa in a book called, uh, well, it's called The Dark Muse in the States. Um, here it's the Daedalus Book of the Occult, A Dark Muse. And it's about writers in the occult. And actually, I, I, I went to the Book of the Inferno with the mouth of hell um, yes. out, outside of uh, Lisbon, where um, Crowley was, you know, faked to suicide. And there's a plaque there, you know, that talks I, I, about, yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I know someone who was working on, on uh, uh, I mean, funnily enough, I mean, I started reading this stuff a long, long time ago, and then it, it dawned on me at one point, it's like all this academic, there's all these Crowley studies. So I, I know someone who's like, you know, uh, working on that. But no, that sounds fascinating. I mean, then I, I guess they must be in English, right? Because they are. was a, a linguist. And yeah. I, I don't know if Crowley, I mean, Crowley wasn't bad himself, but I don't think he, he knew Portuguese. But, no, um, they, they corresponded in English around astrology and, and, and esoteric. Right, uh, yeah, yeah. No, and, fascinating, and fascinating. Time Pessoa was also writing in Portuguese a lot of sort of essays on esoterica. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, he had this whole, um, the, the sort of esoteric history of Portugal um, and its kind of destiny in the world and this kind of thing. It was, it was, um, yeah, yeah. No, he's a fascinating character. I mean, in some ways, he and Crowley, Share other things. I mean, they were both chess players. Uh, he was a much better poet than Crowley was. Mm -hmm. um, but also, he, you know, he had, he created all these heteronyms. Right. These, these other characters and Crowley throughout his career was always adopting. Mm. Although it was only it was always Crowley in disguise. But right. he was always adopting all these, you know, like he's the uh, I don't know uh, the the Mad Arab or something or or you know whatever uh, Prince Shawa Khan and all this sort of thing. So. He was quite a character. And oh yeah, absolutely. And so in terms of Crowley, he's kind of your introduction to magic. You know, years ago, I guess, probably mm. in the 80s. You 70s. Were 70s. <laughs> the band Blondie. Yeah, a long time ago. You guys were playing in clubs like CBGB in New York. And you were also getting into magic. Mm. Mr. Crowley. Can you set yes. the stage for that? Um, well, that happened. Yeah, that happened when I, I, I started playing Blondie in spring of 1975 and I was I was all of 19 and um we at one point moved into uh, a loft space on the Bowery in New York which back in the day really was the Bowery really was you know uh, the end of the road you go there now it's it's completely you know unrecognizable overpriced places except the place where we lived it, that still looks like a dump so I, I I always think that's a good sign somehow yeah it's been it's a you know but um, in this loft space, um, there was this very flamboyant artist who, who sort of rented us off our floor, and he was into Crowley. And I, I never, I didn't know any of this stuff. I had didn't have any interest in it. And the only kind of occult and supernatural this was like horror stories, H.P. Lovecraft and stuff mm -hmm. like that. I mean, I read a lot. I had read Young and I read you know Hesse and Nietzsche, but I really wasn't into the occult at all. But he was this fascinating kind of character there and then he would do these impromptu readings and he painted you know these these canvases based on Crowley's tarot deck and copies of books like Diary of a Drug Fiend were, were lying around 
And that, that's the gateway drug, you know, <laughs> gateway drug. There you go. Gateway book. You know, if you're interested in drugs, you read that one and then, oh, yeah, I'm into magic because, yeah, it's, it's totally you know, up my alley there. Um, but then I also read uh, another book um, just called The Occult. And this was by Colin Wilson, a British writer um, who's had the most influence on on me. I mean, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't be living here in England. I wouldn't be I've written books I've written if it wasn't uh, for him. Uh, but and what was fascinating about his book, and I just said that I had read Nietzsche and, and you know Hesse and this stuff, is that he he looked at the history of the occult in terms of a philosophy of consciousness that he had been working on already for the past decade and a half. I didn't know about. He started in the fifties. His first book is The Outsider, and it's all about this, you know. The, the stress and strain of, of, you know, alienated creative individuals in the world without meaning. And it's people like Nietzsche and, and um, you know, Sartre and uh, Dostoevsky and all this kind of stuff. And, but he's talking about consciousness in the context of this kind of philosophy. And, is, and he's just such a wonderful writer. So I, I was just carried away by it, got completely enthusiastic. Um, and I just started reading and reading. And, you know, and one of the things out of that, was um, you know, reading about the paranormal as well, everything. And that was a great time to do this because the bookshops there, there were so many um, like classic books that were kind of public domain, so cheap reprints, and they were in the cutout bins anyway. So even I, who was starving as a you know, you know, wannabe rocker, this is before Blondie became you know, famous and all that, um, you know, I could afford these books. And I was, but um, no, I wrote a song called I'm Always Touched by Your Presence, Dear, that came out here a few years later and it was a big hit in the uk and europe and it was about this, this telepathy and shared dreams i was having with my girlfriend at the time so you can say all the stuff i'm doing now or have been doing for the last 20 something years started you know uh, back then fascinating you know you know so every time i talk to you gary i think i need to go to london and spend like a week with you so, <laughs> Because everything you say leads me to topics I want to talk to you about. Uh, so the hardest thing, of course, is staying on yeah. track. But that's fascinating because Colin Wilson is someone who's been in and out of my orbit. And I'm very fascinated, but I haven't quite gotten uh, deep into him yet. So I'm fascinated to hear that. Let's go. You, you have something to look forward to. He's, he's comp I, compulsively readable. I, I find myself rereading books of his that I've read, I don't know how many times, you know, just because of his voice and uh, how, how readable he is that's that's it. and you wrote a, did you write a book about Colin? i wrote it but yeah i eventually wrote a book about he, he died in 2013 okay um he was 81 i think if i'm not mistaken or maybe uh, 82 something around there and um and um yeah and it was after that i wrote a book called uh beyond the robot the life and work of colin wilson and the robot is sort of a, a a kind of symbol for what all of his work is about mm -hmm. and it's um like 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 Gurdjieff says and like many other people say we sort of you know we, we live in a kind of half sleep um and in terms of Colin's ideas it's because we unconsciously give over a lot of our experience to um what he calls the robot the robot is a handy absolutely necessary evolutionary labor-saving device that allows us to pass over repetitive actions so that we mm -hmm. can like, you know, if I'm typing something, I don't have to learn how to type every time I go do it. After years of doing it, my fingers know how to do it. And I can think about, you know, what I, what I want to say, like you drive a car, play a musical instrument, anything like that. 
So we wouldn't be able to do anything if we didn't have this robot. Um, but what happens is through a series of misunderstandings and evolutionary mistakes, we've allowed it to do more than it should. It does its job too well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it does things that we'd rather do ourselves. Uh, you're probably not of an age, but when I was a kid growing up in the 60s, there was a, an advertisement on TV for um, some aspirin or something. And uh, there was a woman who said, whose mother was always you know, uh, doing things for her. And she was saying, mother, I'd rather do it myself. And <laughs> oh, oh, no, no, take two of these. And she would calm down. But that's exactly, you know, we've allowed the robot to do, it looks at the sun, it smells the air, makes love to our, you know, whatever partners, it listens to great music, when we'd rather do it ourselves. Right. And on these off moments when either it's put to sleep a bit or is taking a break or somehow we are more present, we feel more alive. And, and, and that's because we, the actual, me and you are, are enjoying our experience. We're, we're not allowing this. And you have to remember the robot isn't a, isn't a villain. It's some, but we, we can't live without it. Right. Uh, but we have to be able to learn, you know, in uh, Colin's work, it's, that sounds very simple. Um, but it's also about this one, one thing he says, the paradoxical nature of freedom. And this is the funny thing that when our freedom is threatened, we know exactly what it is and we know how important it is and we'll fight tooth and nail to the end for it. But once we've secured it, after a little while, unconsciously, we, we lose that vividness of it. And we sink back. And we even get to a point where we feel it's a burden. Mm -hmm. What am I going to do? I got a couple hours to kill. You know, Jesus, you know, that kind of thing. That's the robot, you know, said, so don't, you know, you don't have to do anything. I'll take care of everything. And meanwhile, life becomes kind of dull. So somehow crisis is one of the things that jolts us out of that and we, we sort of recognize okay this is more important i i have to do this myself that's and this is why all these outsider characters that he writes about they go and do crazy things that's mm -hmm. awesome oh good i'm looking forward to getting into that yeah and i want to ask one last question to, to finish up our interview here um, oh. because um i don't want to take up too much of your time uh but i, I wanted to find out so Okay, so there's a bunch of people in the world who are interested in magic, right? They, mm. they love magic and, and they're interested and they're, they're going to pursue it. And, but for, for the rest of us who, who maybe haven't been into magic or, or have seen it as something either mm -hmm. from or something on the yeah. front, why should, why should the, those people start to take an interest in magic? Why should they start to be interested? Well, in well I, I would say it's not so much you should take an interest in magic per se, as perhaps try to understand the notion that um, there isn't this impermeable barrier between what goes on in here and what goes on out there. Like, you know, that, that film, you know, what, unlike Vegas, what stays in the, what happens in the mind doesn't necessarily stay there, right? Uh, so, and again, this is the whole notion of the new thought and right of different things, you know. Um, and in my books, I, I, I show from different people's work and putting them together how this notion of an absolute separation between the inner and the outer is, is a relatively new um, development in, in consciousness. And at an earlier time, um, it was less so. It was, there was, it was more partic participatory uh, nature of consciousness. There's a fellow named Owen Barfield who, who writes about that quite a bit. And 
he's not that well known, but he was a great friend of C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, uh, and he was a follower of Udo Steiner, but he wrote quite a bit of showing how history of language shows us that at an earlier time, the kind of rigid separation between inner and outer didn't, didn't exist. And hence, you know, earlier language is more poetic, it's more figurative, and then we have all the myths and reports of, you know, spirits and fairies and things of that sort. Um, so one of the things I think that may be happening is, is whether we like it or not, um, that, how should we say it, that, that, that separation, either it's breaking down or another way of seeing is that somehow it, it's, um, I don't know how to say it. I mean, as I said, we talked about synchronicities. There's a variety of different ways in which you can, you can un understand how it's not this. It doesn't mean that, you know, it's hard to say because we get into these sort of metaphysical kind of phenomenological waters where inner and outer all start to lose the very sharp, you know, definitions, and we, we don't have a language, you know, we're talking about Pessoa and, and poetry. And poetry can somehow show us this stuff, but we, we've yet to develop a kind of discursive language to talk about it without getting into contradictions and all that. Right, but, and I guess this, what you're talking about is the, the, the kind of disillusion, partial disillusion of inner and outer, mm -hmm. also, also has an, a, a parallel in the partial disillusion between fiction and fact. Which well, exactly. Absolutely. That's one of the points I make in the book is that, you know, the no, whole notion of, well, I, it's, I, I have tongue in cheek say that, you know, um, what happened is that we, we put so much reality into the television. We put so much reality into the means of representing reality that something popped out and Trump was what popped out. Because he started out as reality TV. Well, not started out, but he was, you know, a reality TV star that programmed The Apprentice. And if you look at that show, it's very much he's being primed for the role of being president. You know, he wears the power suit. He hires and fires. He's magnanimous and generous. He's cool and ruthless. You know, he's, he's the leader. And I, I make a reference in the book to a, a, a book that came out in, in the 1940s called From Caligari to Hitler by a fellow named Siegfried Krakauer. He's a great German, you know, uh, social scientist. But if you know all these early films, um, pre-National Socialist films in Germany, like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, or M, uh, that made Peter Lorre famous, uh, Metropolis. There are all these films where you have these kind of big leader in the background. Another one is these crime films, Dr. Mabuza. English speakers don't know as well, but in German, he's like, you know, uh, like a, a famous bad guy, a famous supervillain. And these films all show there's some kind of, you know, um, Mr. X or Mr. Big in the background, you know, create, calling the shots and, and, and manipulating things. And this, he, Krakauer argued that this primed the German public for, for Hitler, you know, the Fuhrer to come and all that kind of thing. So I don't, I, I don't want to, you know, make that analogy too strong, but there is a notion in which Trump's career readied him for what he was doing. And when I heard that he had put his hat in the ring, as they say, I thought he's going to get elected just because nothing made more sense than to have a reality TV star become mm. president of the United States. It, it sounds like a reality TV show itself, you know? And so it's like all this unfolding, you know? And again, this is another, that's the postmodernism thing too, where they say the spectacle, it's the age of the spectacle, it's taken over. What we see has taken over from the actual reality. Yes, and I, I love what you're saying. And, and, you know, some of what you've just talked about is 
you could say that the sort of negative manifestations of fact and fiction breaking down. Or, or oh, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not necessarily a good thing. Uh, it, it, by, by, by in and of it, neither is magic necessarily a good thing or the imagination in and of itself. It, it's a power. The, the flip side is that, that I think it is a good thing because I think we have surrendered to a reality that's beyond our control. We've surrendered to being victimized by the idea of a reality that is enforced or inflicted on us. And the breaking down of inner and outer fact and fiction, although it has negative manifestations, of course, it also, I think, allows us to realize, because the first time you and I met, the only time we've met in person uh, was because you did a, uh, a talk uh, with my former teacher yeah. in London. And, and so, I'm coming uh, from a non-dual tradition, and in a non-dual tradition, one interpretation would be that there is no distinction between inner and outer, because that mm. would yeah. And so this, I find it fascinating that, that the ways in which you talk about magic, I think can, can lead to a kind of awakening to the oneness of reality and, and the fact that inner and outer may be perceptual differences that are real differences, but they aren't sort of ontologically, existentially, there's no actual clear borderline between those two. And I think that can be a huge awakening for people. Mm-hmm. No, and I, I mean, I, I, well, I mean, I, um, I know that um, part of your former uh, kind of work involved uh, the work of Gene Gebser, you know, the, the philosopher, and he talks about the breakdown of the mental rational consciousness structure. And I just overall, I would say, yeah, he, he, he hit it there. That seems to be what's been going on. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, well, this is the thing, you know, it's, it's, you know, it may not be ontologically, experientially, we still feel the difference between inner and outer. So phenomenologically, which is, I, I, I try to stay within that. Like, okay, what, what is, what is, what is, I don't know if it's real or it's not real. I don't know if it's inner or it's outer, but it's like this, <laughs> this is what it's like. Sort of, you know, when uh, insofar as I can, you know, recount the, the experience, um, but um, I, to me, it, it's important to realize, like I said, you know, our, our, we're not just passive. We're not just passive ref- reflections of reality. And this is sort of the Cartesian notion that you know, there's there's a independent whatever out there, and the mind is a reflection of it, and. The phenomenological, which Colin Wilson came out of that tradition a lot, and this goes back to a a real straightforward button down here, Dr. Professor, you know, philosopher uh, Edmund Husserl. But his fundamental idea was that perception is intentional. There, there, there's a there's an intent. We not we're not immediately aware that we're making some kind of fundamental effort to perceive the world, but it's going on in some way. So it's not a passive reflection. It's a it's a reaching out in some yeah. way, and so if that's the case, we don't create reality, but we certainly have a hand involved in the way the reality that we do see uh, looks. You know, we, we we pick and choose and all that kind of thing. And again, when synchronicities happen, do I somehow make it happen, even though I I'm not voluntarily trying to make it happen, or somehow am I funnel through a series of you know situations to arrive somewhere where that that is taking place it's 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 hard to really think about how you know 
because some of them, some of the ones I have, in fact, that's the next book that's coming out. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll give a plug. It's coming out next year and it's called Dreaming Ahead of Time. Oh, nice. It's about my experiences with precognitive dreams, but also with synchronicities and coincidences. And it looks at all of those kinds of things. And I mean, I've recounted some where it's just like, this is like, this, someone would have written this in a book, but how this could possibly be arranged? Because mm. uh, it would mean somebody getting on a bus at a certain time to make sure they would get off the bus there. And then I would have to be just be sitting there, even though I wasn't really waiting for the bus, you know. And oh, yeah, that happened. Well, how, who, who knew in advance? So all those kind of things come in, you know. That's, that's amazing. By the way, do you know Jeffrey Kripal? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. We've met and corresponded. Oh, good. Oh, yeah. fascinating. He, he's, he's written many, many fascinating books. Yes. Yeah, so, so, so you and he are like way top on my list of, <laughs> of I don't know what, heroes, I suppose. But, but yeah, I guess, I guess the thing that I feel, and I'm feeling talking mm -hmm. to you, what I felt in your book is, because I don't know what's real. I don't know what reality is. I don't know how it works. But I, I think it's very important that we uh, have the capacity to question what we think is real. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I feel like the, the, the way you speak about magic opened a different door for me to question mm -hmm. unconscious mm -hmm. assumptions about what was real and what was possible mm -hmm. that forced me to have to admit that I don't really know. Uh, well, that is the beginning of wisdom, my son, right? Isn't it? You know, that's right. we don't know, you know, that's we can start maybe to put, put a couple things together. Um, but I, as I said, I just think we, we it seemed to me Right now, so many things have come together that, that suggest that. And on top of that, we have all the, I mean, climate change, whatever you want to call it, all the other, you know, um, the, the physical crises out in the world. So we have an ontological crisis, we have epistemological crises. We don't, we don't know what to know anymore. I mean, fun, basically, if the government says it, it's wrong. So that's, that's why the, the, there's so many, you know, conspiracy theories about all this stuff. Right. And uh, the, again, the, you know, there's a positive, creative, necessary skepticism, but then there's a skepticism that can, it just opens more one trap door after the other. That's right. And you're, const you're constantly falling through. So I, 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 Gebser said we had to go through this. He, he talked about the equivalent of the dark night of the soul in some way. Okay. Um, a variety of other people. I wrote an article um, last year during the first lockdown here about H.G. Wells, who everyone knows, you know, the time machine, the war of the worlds, but he, he wrote many, many books about, about social philosophy and what was coming in on its way and anticipations. And he saw pretty much everything that we're going through uh, coming at least 100 years ago. Uh, 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 and so people have been aware of, it, it's the acceleration of change. That's an easy way to say it. But like, ch change happens, but it happens at an increasing kind of rate. And we're so used to things changing overnight. Yeah.